You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder Adam Benson. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We had started last week looking at um, an overview of the doctrine of sanctification. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 3, we are told this is God's will for our life. Our own sanctification. So we've been looking since last week at um, just kind of an overview of what sanctification means before we really begin to look at what it means in the context of this chapter and what Paul was trying to communicate to the Thessalonian people. We said that he's building off of his concluding remarks in chapter 3 that he had expressed to uh, the church at Thessalonica that he had a desire to... Uh, to get back to them, that uh, God had given him the opportunity to be there, to plant that church, to see initial conversions to Christ, that his presence there had been um, hindered, he had been removed before he had intended to leave due to the persecution and um, resistance there by some of the Jewish and Gentile um, lost people. And um, so he's trying to get back to them, to continue the work, to continue establishing this church. He said that he had a desire to increase their faith, to increase what's lacking in their faith. That he's taught them a lot, they've grown a lot in their knowledge of the gospel and in their knowledge of the word, but it's incomplete. And so he wants to come back to continue that progression of faith. He also wants to come to continue teaching them about how to love one another, how to love lost people, and how love is a... um, Defining descriptive characteristic of a new of a believer, and then lastly, wanting to continue to educate them about their hope of Jesus's return. That there was some confusion and some um, unanswered questions about the end times, and, and they had actually seemingly communicated that back to Paul through Timothy. And so he wants to come and to continue establishing them in understanding what their hope is. So he had wrapped up chapter three in that way, and then it brought us to chapter four. In verse 1 it says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then we said last week specifically, he talks in terms of sexual immorality. He says that you would abstain. From sexual immorality. We defined sanctification last week as the progressive work of the Holy Spirit and the believer that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ in our actual lives. We distinguished it from our actual conversion to Christ that when we come to Christ, when we put our faith and trust in Him, when we repent of our sins, we are what we call justified. We are declared righteous. We are now viewed as forgiven of our sins. We are now viewed as perfect in relationship to the law through the work of Christ. That he has come to satisfy God's wrath against our sin by dying on the cross, a sacrificial death. That he has also come to satisfy God's requirements to his holy law. That he came to fulfill those requirements. And so in relationship to our legal standing before God, we have been saved. Sanctification is the bringing of that moral condition of us into conformity with the legal status that we've been declared righteous. So sanctification is us being changed morally. We are um, in our lifestyle, in our um, attitude, 
Everything's being transformed about us to be what Christ wants us to be. Our thoughts, our actions, our dreams, our desires, our relationships with each other. It's God's plan to make us into what we were meant to be. We said lastly that it was learning to walk in the Spirit. And then I began to give you some uh, descriptions or some defining characteristics about sanctification. But I think it's crucial for every believer to know, specifically new believers, because if not, we're, we can misunderstand what sanctification is and fall into some really bad, um, some really bad teaching and understanding and how we're communicating what really sanctification is. And if we're not careful, uh, we will miss the point of what God's will is for our life. That it is sanctification, but a correct understanding of what sanctification is. So we looked last week, number one, that sanctification must become our first priority. That it has to be a priority for us. That if it's God's will for our life, then we have to set that as a priority in our schedule during the week. That sanctification, our sanctification, our growth in Christ, our growth in becoming like Christ has to become a priority for us. And we looked at some hindrances to why we don't make it a priority. And we talked about um, just the, the time factor in general. We talked about comparing ourselves to others and sometimes thinking that we are more okay than we are because we compare our spiritual condition to other people. If we see ourselves doing better than others, then it becomes less of a priority, less of a necessity in our life. We said that, um, that we have a responsibility to use our time in a way that brings glory to God for our sanctification, that we all have the same equal amount of time. That God tells us in, in 2 Peter 1.3 that we have everything that we need to be sanctified. We have everything that we need to pursue sanctification. So it becomes a matter of us prioritizing it in our time. Secondly, we said that sanctification is not about proving ourselves. We're not trying to prove ourselves to God. We're not trying to prove ourselves to others. And we're certainly not trying to prove ourselves to ourselves. But it's not about proving anything that... Um, like we said already, that the work of Christ has already done what it needs to do for our salvation. That we have been taken care of. The requirements of the law have been dealt with and taken care of for us. So we're not trying to prove anything. Number three, we said that it's about fighting sin to delight in God, not keeping rules. And so we tried to distinguish between sanctification and legalism. Legalism. And we, we looked at legalism as a way of... Uh, keeping a manageable list of rules um, that allow us to think that we're doing good spiritually. And a lot of times it's not keeping them because we want to, it's keeping them because we're told that this is what a good Christian does. And a lot of times new believers uh, fall prey to this. They think that coming to Christ means keeping a list of rules, keeping a set of standards. Sometimes the church um, unwisely communicates that. That this is what sanctification is. It means not doing these certain things and, and maybe doing a few of these things. And we said last week that instead we have a responsibility to show that sanctification is learning to delight in the ways of God and learning to not delight in sin any longer. And seeing that we don't need to and that we don't have to. That we begin to see the consequences, the effects of sin, that uh, as Jesus says that the the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That Satan has entered into this world. He controls this world, influences this world, drawing us to sin, entrapping us in sin. And ultimately, it steals from us, it kills us, and it destroys everything that we hold precious to us. That Jesus comes and says, I, I, I come to offer life. And not just life, but the abundant life. 
And so sanctification is learning to understand that God's rules and, and God's laws in Scripture are designed for our good. And so we looked at some examples of how to communicate that, that God's laws are good to a new believer. That they can come to Christ and begin to experience transformation not by keeping rules, but understanding why God has instituted these laws. Thirdly, or fourthly, we said sanctification means changing our thought process and lifestyle. We kind of stop right here. I told you last week that as Christians, we need to become known for pursuing righteousness just as much as we are known for not sinning. That sometimes we get labeled as people who don't do certain things. And I challenge you that as a church, we need to become known for the things that we do. In Ephesians chapter 4, if you want to turn there real quick. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. To put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, and be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Paul begins to list off a lot of things that Christians should not be in, involved in, that Christians should not be engaged in. But then he replaces those things. He says, instead of being known for being a thief, obviously we would all agree Christians don't steal. Christians don't take things that are not their own. Paul says a Christian should no longer steal. But a Christian should also replace that lack of stealing with an honest, hard-working mindset. That a Christian is someone who is known for working hard in society, for laboring with his hands to provide for himself and for his family. That he's not known as being lazy. He's not known as being uh, someone who, who uh, mooches off of others. That he's someone who honestly works hard, who fights laziness, and works to provide for himself and his family. So as Christians, sanctification means that, that, yes, we are putting off sin, we're changing our lifestyle, but not just to stop doing certain things, but to replace it with the things that God wants us to be involved in. Which brings us to number five. Number five this week, sanctification involves a spiritual battle. Sanctification involves a spiritual battle. We've already looked at in recent weeks how in this early church, and I think it would remain consistent for our early church, in, this, in, the, in the life of this church in Thessalonica, early on we see Satan act 
actively trying to hinder their sanctification. Trying to actively hinder it. We said that Paul was hindered from coming back. That Paul had made every effort to try to get back to this church. Satan, whatever it looked like, was tearing up the road. He was making it impossible for, for Paul to get back and to do what he desired to do. We said that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and said, I'm concerned that in my absence that the tempter has come and tempted you and our labor has been in vain. That you have stopped submitting yourself to what we have taught you and instead you have been led back to your old way of life. So Satan was very active in this early church, was trying to destroy their sanctification. And I think we need to be conscious and aware of the fact that Satan also, and again, when we were talking about that, we said, when we say Satan, we're not talking specifically about the being of Satan. He's not omnipresent. He can't be involved with our church and be involved with a church on the other side of the world. That he's, he, he's confined to one location. He's a created being. So when we say Satan, we mean simply satanic forces, demons, and, and every principality and power that, that wars against us. I think we have to be cautious and aware that Satan would like nothing more than to destroy what we want to plant here in Sinoi. I think the New Testament testifies to that. I want to show you a couple of areas where we see this in early churches that were being brought up in the New Testament. In Acts chapter 5 verse 3. Just to, to remind us of how Satan is actively seeking to destroy sanctification in churches. In Acts chapter 5, we have the story of Ananias and Sapphira. Now, if you read Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, and 4, you see that the early church just starts running with a bang. I mean, it's just, boom! Day of Pentecost happens. Apostles are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're speaking in tongues. People are hearing the gospel in their language. Um, God sovereignly ordains it to where um, Jesus goes back to heaven, he ascends into heaven, and then the day of Pentecost happens, or the festival of Pentecost. If you don't know what that is, it's a festival where the Jewish people would gather in Jerusalem. And it was something that brought Jewish people who were in other nations to Jerusalem. So people would travel from other countries to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival. People who came from nations that spoke different languages. Jesus has just given the Great Commission, go and make disciples of all nations. A pretty overwhelming task for this small band of followers. Jesus says, go wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Holy Spirit comes upon them at the day of Pentecost. And they begin to speak gospel in languages that they're not trained to speak in. And these Jewish people who have come from other countries come to hear what these apostles have to say. They're hearing the gospel in their language. They go back to their nations and all of a sudden the gospel is beginning to go out very quickly. Because people in other nations have now heard the gospel. Very quickly, without language training, without having to go to school to learn how to do this. Peter preaches a sermon on that day. 3,000 people get saved. Peter preaches another sermon not too long after that. 5,000 people get saved. So the church is becoming very active um, and it's exploding onto the scene. And one of the responses to the new life in Christ, we've looked at before in Acts 2 and 3 and 4. People began to sell their stuff. And they were giving to the church and were told that the church would use the money as different individuals in the church had different needs. So people were selling stuff and bringing it. Nowhere in the New Testament are we told that they were commanded to do this. These guys were not commanded to go and sell everything and bring it to the church. They did it willingly, without being compelled to do it. Just a natural response to the gospel. But what happened is, 
Satan capitalized or tried to capitalize on an opportunity to make this uncommanded giving a source of pride. He says, I'll, I'll take advantage of this. I'll cause pride to be stirred up in these churches. I'll cause people to try to outdo one another in a prideful way of giving to the church. And we know that Ananias and Sapphira fell prey to that. So the man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have... Con- Contrive this deed in your heart. You have not lied to men, but to God. Paul attributes this action to satanic activity. Not removing responsibility from Ananias. Ananias is about to drop dead right here. Showing that he had responsibility for his actions. But but Peter identifies this as a a satanic activity. this This is motivated by what Satan's wanting to do in this church. He's wanting to destroy this church by causing people to... To become prideful in their giving. To come in and say, hey, this is, this is all the money that I made from this, this sale. Knowing that I've kept back part to my own self to do what I want to do with it. And Ananias would have been totally fine keeping the entire portion to himself. There was no command to give it. The problem became when he lied about it, trying to promote himself, trying to make himself look more holy and more spiritual than he actually was. Satanic activity trying to encourage pride. We also see it in 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. So now the Spirit expressively says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid, who forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods that God created, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Ultimately, Paul tells Timothy, he says, there coming, there's coming false teachers who are going to teach legalism, essentially. False teachers who will try to destroy sanctification in the church. Paul attributes this to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Now, in no way do we think that demons begin to manifest themselves as human beings and teach this nonsense. No, it, this, was, this was motivated by genuine false teachers, false human beings who were giving themselves over to false teaching. But Paul identifies it as satanic activity. This is motivated by Satan's plan to destroy the church. He wants to destroy it with bad doctrine, bad teaching, bad theology. He wants to confuse people about sanctification. This is what it means to be holy, to not do this, to not do this, to not do this. Paul says be mindful of this. This is satanic activity. This is Satan trying to destroy the church, to destroy its understanding of sanctification. In Ephesians chapter 4. This passage we already looked at a few minutes ago, but we didn't highlight this portion of it. As Paul's telling this early church to put away certain things and embrace new things as a Christian, 
He says in verse 26, be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. One way that Satan knows he can destroy the church is to attack the unity of the church by causing bitterness to spring up in the lives of its members. Paul says, do not let your anger go down when the sun goes down. Do not let your your anger linger. He says, you've got to attack it. You've got to get rid of it. That's why we're given instructions about going to people who sin against us, resolving it, taking care of it, not letting it um, build up in our life where we become resentful towards individuals in our church. It destroys the unity, and it ultimately destroys sanctification. Paul says, you deal with your anger. And he doesn't even say so that you don't become bitter. He says so that Satan doesn't have an opportunity. Again, attributing it to satanic activity. Not to remove our personal responsibility in this, but to show how dangerous these type of things are. Because Satan is looking to capitalize on any way that he can get into this church and destroy it. He is looking for an entrance, whether it's through pride and giving, whether it's through some type of false teaching, someone with bad theology, which is why we want to be so careful about promoting leadership in this church, because we know Satan is looking for a way in. And if necessary, he will use it through a teacher. Or he's looking to get in through bitterness, through unresolved anger. And Paul says, be mindful of this. Be aware of it. Be on guard against it. First Timothy chapter 5. First Timothy chapter 5 verses 9 through 16. Paul is addressing Timothy about an issue in regards to taking care of people in the church. Specifically widows. How do we take care of widows? We know that James teaches us that, that pure and undefiled religion is this, taking care of orphans and widows. So how do we do that? There was, there was regulations in the early church about how to take care of widows. And we're given these in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. So this is a specific type of widow that the church was supposed to help at that time. A godly woman who was pursuing sanctification, who was submitting to the Holy Spirit, who had been faithful to her husband. Verse 11, but refused to enroll younger widows. Anybody younger than 60 was considered a younger widow. He says, don't don't enroll them. Why? For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house. And not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary No occasion for slander, for some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who truly are widows. So the instruction was given to to take care of women who were not going to remarry. Who were going to kind of make a commitment. Hey, we're going to serve the church. We're not going to remarry. We're going to kind of give our remaining years to the church. In exchange, the church is going to take care of our needs. 
Because we've been left without a husband. For whatever reason, we don't have the financial means to take care of ourselves. Paul says, if you do somebody, if you do this arrangement for somebody who's younger than this, all the Christian men are saying, hey, they're off limits. We're not supposed to marry them. They've been enrolled in this widow program. They're not going to remarry. The church is going to take care of them for the rest of their life. So all the Christian men kind of back off and say, hey, we're not going to pursue marriage with those ladies. But that doesn't mean the unchristian, the lost people are off limits. And Paul says, we're not careful. Their passion and desire for marriage will get fulfilled in a bad way. And they'll leave the faith. They'll wander off towards an unbeliever. So he says, I encourage younger widows to get married. Like, do this. Because if not, it it provides Satan an opportunity for gossip and slander to spring up in the church. You've got women who are um, serving in the church, but are using that as an opportunity to gossip about things going on in the church. So we need to be very aware, and women in our church need to be very aware of the dangers and the destructive desire that Satan has to destroy our church through gossip and slander about other people in our church. Paul identifies this as something that Satan desires to do. He is looking for a way to destroy our church through gossip. Next, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter 7, Paul is giving principles for marriage in verse 1. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan, we've already said this over the last couple of weeks, Satan would love to destroy our church through sexual immorality, which is relevant for what he's telling the church at Thessalonica. He says, God's will is your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this week in our guys' discipleship groups, we were talking about, um, or two weeks ago, we were talking about the, the qualifications of an elder. That an elder is to be a one-woman man. And we were talking about the, um, the fight that we as men have to fight against sexual immorality. That if we're going to fall as godly men, most likely it will be through sexual immorality. That, they, that we all know individuals in our life who fell into sexual immorality and we were totally shocked by it. Totally shocked, whether it was pre-marriage or during marriage. Someone who, um, who, who got a girl pregnant when we were growing up in youth group or high school or, or whatnot. Or a, a married couple who all outward appearances seem to be loving each other, fully happy in their marriage, and you find out that the man has been involved in an affair for X amount of years. But we all have those stories. And we were talking as as men in this church how we want to fight against that. That we want to be aware of the temptation towards that. And we want to take every precaution necessary to fight against that in this church. Why? Because Satan would love to enter into our church and destroy it through sexual immorality. Paul tells us that. Paul tells us that. He says the temptation towards sexual immorality comes from satanic activity. That Satan would like nothing more than to tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
We've already said that Satan would love to withhold opportunities for sanctification, 1 Thessalonians 2. He hinders Paul from going back to this church. 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is the last one we'll look at in relation to Satan. Qualifications for the overseer or the elder. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he must he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert. Or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Here it is again. Satanic activity. The desire to destroy the church through ungodly leadership. Ungodly leadership. Paul says, you be very careful about the men that you appoint as elders in the church. Make sure they're solid. Make sure that they've been Christians for a while, that their doctrine and theology is solid. Why? Because Satan wants to destroy the church through ungodly leadership. He wants to destroy the church through prideful leadership. Paul says, you be on guard against that. So number five, salvation involves a spiritual battle. Satan wants to hinder our sanctification. We've seen that. We've seen efforts that he's made in churches previous to ours to destroy to destroy it. We don't blame Satan for these things, like I said. Like we have responsibility for our own actions. We have responsibility to fight these temptations, to fight these type of actions. Okay? But we need to be conscious and aware that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. So, so how do we balance that? We have to be faithful to make good decisions, to to seek accountability, to seek discipleship, being mindful of the fact that Satan wants to get in here and destroy us. Satan wants to get in here and destroy us. We need to be mindful of the fact that Satan is described as a lion who has plans to devour, which means that we need to be consciously aware of that. We need to pray against it. We need to be aware that attacks are going to come. We need to pray against that together and fight against that. Together, The comforting thing is that the Holy Spirit works to complete our sanctification. It's a spiritual battle, but we're not left to fight against Satan in and of ourselves. We've been given something greater than Satan. We've been given something greater than Satan, the Holy Spirit. A couple of verses that you might want to write down, John 14, 26. John 14, 26. John 16, 8 through 13. Passages where Jesus promises... But the Holy Spirit is being sent to teach us and to grow us. 1 Corinthians 2.12. 1 John 4.4 says, Little children, you are from God and overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. The only hope that we have to not fall prey to Satan's desires to destroy this church is that he who indwells us, the Holy Spirit, is greater than every attempt that Satan has. So that's where the comfort comes from. We need to be aware of the possibility of attacks, and we need to be preemptive in avoiding those. 
That Satan wants to destroy us in these different ways. Gossip, slander, sexual immorality, false teachers, pride. These are some descriptive ways that the scriptures talk about how Satan wants to destroy our church. So we be preemptive about those. We fight against those. We make sure that Satan doesn't have a doorway to get into this church in those ways. Constantly coming back to the fact that the only way we're going to find victory in this is because the Holy Spirit is greater. The Holy Spirit is greater. God's role in our spiritual battles to cause us to want His will, to give us the power to do it, and to lovingly discipline us along the way. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline in which, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Paul, or the author of Hebrews, is describing the special relationship that we have with God as Father. That he is working in us for our holiness. He is working in us for our sanctification. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul describes the fact that he's been given a thorn in the flesh by God. That a, that a messenger of Satan has been sent to him to keep his pride in check. And you read that, it's really confusing because you've got God who's trying to work for Paul's sanctification. And he's using Satan to accomplish that. Which is where the encouragement also comes to us. Is that it's not Satan and God who are on equal footing fighting against each other for our sanctification. It's God who is far superior, who uses Satan and his desire to destroy us to actually sanctify us. Make sure you get that, that God uses Satan. When Satan desires to attack us and to, to, to destroy our sanctification, God actually uses it to further our sanctification when we resist him. When we resist him, like the Bible tells us to in um, James chapter 4 and 1 Peter chapter 5, when we resist the devil, God uses the schemes of the devil to sanctify us. In um, Luke chapter 22, this is Jesus talking to, um, to Peter and his disciples there at the Last Supper. Verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Here's another example of how Jesus uses Satan to further our sanctification. He says, Peter, Satan wants to sift you. Satan wants to destroy you. Satan wants to cause you to stop following me. But I've prayed for you. That when Satan attempts to do this, he will not be successful. And that when you actually resist him, you will be better equipped to strengthen and encourage others. 
So really what happens is sanctification happens not only in Peter's life, but in the lives of others. We get, we get kind of a, an in-depth view here of what Satan's trying to do. Satan wants to destroy Peter. Peter's going to be fundamental in the establishment of churches, especially before Paul comes on the scene. Satan wants to destroy this, this main disciple, this main leader. Jesus says, I've already prayed for you. He's not going to be successful. It's actually going to make you better. It's going to make you better in being able to encourage others. So it involves a spiritual battle. Number six, it involves a personal battle. Yes, there's a spiritual battle going on where the Holy Spirit is fighting for our sanctification. And Satan is is fighting against it. Satan wants to hinder it. But just like we talked about last week, I think Jesse and Jason both highlighted these two aspects. There's a spiritual battle where where God's going to do this for us. But there's also the personal battle where we have responsibility to do this. That we have a responsibility to participate in our sanctification. God chooses to sanctify us through our participation. In Romans 6, 19-23. says, so I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your member as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So this is personal responsibility that we used to give our members to lawlessness. We used to give our members to sin. Now we do the opposite. We give ourselves to righteousness. We give ourselves to opportunities for for holiness. A change in lifestyle. You have the responsibility to do that. To, To not let your body be used for sin. To instead let your body be used for holiness. In Philippians 2, 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And we see both aspects there, that God does it, but he's telling us to do it, to work out our salvation. We must choose to fight sin and pursue holiness. The victory has been won, but we must enforce it daily. We've used the illustration before that it's similar to uh, when, we won the, when we won the war over in Iraq. That the, that the war was essentially over. That Saddam had been overthrown. That the victory had been won. We had gone into Baghdad. We had stamped our presence there. And yet we had to continue to leave troops there to enforce that victory. So when scripture describes the fact that, that the victory over sin has been won for us, that's true. And yet we have the daily responsibility to enforce that victory. That we have the daily responsibility to leave troops present to fight against that, that continued resistance to that victory. And so, yes, the victory over sin has been won. We have been justified, declared righteous. We have been saved. But we have the daily responsibility to live that out and to continue to resist sin on a regular basis. So God's role to cause us to want his will, to give us the power to do it, to lovingly discipline us along the way. My role is to join myself to a body of believers and pursue holiness in his word while relying on him. So make sure you write that down. Your role in sanctification, to join yourself to a body of believers, to pursue holiness in his word 
while relying on Him. We don't do this by ourselves. We do this as a church. This is why church membership is absolutely crucial to your sanctification. You can't follow Christ on your own. You can't do it in and of your own power. That you need the encouragement of others to fight sin regularly. We join ourselves to a body of believers. We pursue holiness in His Word while relying on Him. Number seven, sanctification leads to steadily making good, wise, Christ-like decisions naturally. I think it's important that new believers understand that the goal is to where our natural reactions to different situations are holy now. That we no longer react naturally in a sinful way to different situations, that we're reacting in a holy way. That we're striving to make good, wise, Christ-like decisions naturally. We're not called to pretend or to plan to be holy. We don't, we're not called to pretend or to plan to be holy. We can plan to make good decisions. We can plan to, to put on a facade when we're around Christian people at church. That we're going we're gonna to talk the holy game. We're going to try to act the holy game when we're around Christians. But then when we're not, then we kind of go back to our old way of life, our old, our old attitude. The goal is that every morning when we wake up, when, we are, um, when we're encountering different things at work or at school, that we're reacting in, in holy ways to those situations. Opportunities where we don't have time to plan to be holy. Where we don't have time to plan to make a good decision. That our attitude, that our reaction to different things is steadily becoming more and more Christ-like. So sanctification is making good, wise, Christ-like decisions naturally. And then number eight, sanctification is a lifelong pursuit that will see its completion on the day of Jesus Christ. We talked last week that full sanctification won't happen in our lifetime here. That we will never be fully free from sin in such a way that we, we never sin anymore. That completion only happens when Jesus returns. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. The goal is for us to be Christ-like. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All those big confusing words point to one thing. That God had a plan to conform us to the image of his son. That's the goal of our salvation, for us to be made like Christ. And that's not going to happen until Jesus returns. Philippians 1.6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. 
I think somebody had asked last week, can, um, does glorification happen when you die? Are people in heaven right now considered glorified? And I would say that, that that's not fully accurate. Paul says that, that God starts a work and he'll finish the work on the day of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ returns, that's when our sanctification is made complete. That's when we become glorified. That's when sin is completely removed, completely dealt with. We're given glorified bodies that will always react holy in every situation that we encounter for the rest of eternity. That's the long-term goal that we have, the long-term hope that we have. That one day we won't have to fight like this anymore. But in the meantime, we use that hope to encourage us daily and we enforce that victory daily together. So sanctification has to be a first priority in our life. We have to communicate to others that it's not about proving ourselves to God. We're not trying to earn God's favor. We are trying to teach ourselves through the word. We're we're renewing our minds to see that sin is not all satisfying that Christ is. That, That we're delighting in Christ and not trying to keep rules. That rule keeping becomes something that we desire to do because we see the goodness of it. But it's about changing our thought process and our lifestyle through the word. But it does involve a spiritual battle. That we're mindful of the fact that Satan wants to attack this church and destroy it. But that we comfort ourselves by the fact that the Holy Spirit is greater than that. That we're, we're, on, we're on guard. We're alarmed to the fact that Satan wants to hinder our sanctification. But that we're encouraged by the fact that the Holy Spirit is better. It's a personal battle that we have to do ourselves. We have to participate in our sanctification. We have to do things in order to be sanctified. The goal to make good, wise, Christ-like decisions naturally while we're here. Recognizing, number eight, that the big goal is for us to be made like Christ for all of eternity. Two application questions for you. Do I know these truths about sanctification for myself? If you embrace these truths, do you know these truths? Are these truths that you're living by for yourself? And then secondly, do I know these truths about sanctification so that I can teach them to others? Because when Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4 that it's, it's God's will for our sanctification, he's talking in a plural sense. So your priority is not just for your sanctification. Your priority has to be sanctification in Sovereign Hope Church. For everybody. Which means you have to be pursuing sanctification, but you're also investing yourself for the sanctification of others. That you are pouring yourself into others for their sanctification as well. Because Paul says God's will for you, church at Thessalonica, is your sanctification as a church. So it's not just God's will for Chris to be sanctified or Lauren or Ben to be sanctified. God's will is for Sovereign Hope Church to be sanctified. And that means us pursuing sanctification individually, but also investing ourselves for the sanctification of others. We'll close with this verse, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 1 says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you 
And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. There's that encouragement again. Paul says, you will be protected from Satan and what he wants to do. We have confidence in the Lord about you. That you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God. And to the steadfastness of Christ. Tyson is going to come and just play briefly to give you guys an opportunity and time to reflect. Maybe go back over the notes. To spend some time in personal prayer. Um, we want to be faithful to not just close the services out and be done. And, and not really give the Holy Spirit time to, um, to continue teaching you in personal reflection. So we're just going to give you a few moments to, to spend time in personal prayer, kind of looking back over these, um, these eight things that we've given you about sanctification, asking yourself the question, do I know these for myself? Do I know these well enough to teach to others? Because as we continue to pray over our salvation list for this church, the long-term goal is that these people are brought to our church for discipleship. And that discipleship will ultimately happen through you guys individually, one-on-one, reaching out to them. In order for you to be able to do that, it requires you to be equipped in a correct understanding of sanctification. As we get ready to leave today, I want to encourage you to continue thinking through what we've talked about today and last week. We're going to have opportunities on the city for you this week to engage with your C groups, to to ask questions and to Share some things that you're learning and things that um, you're applying in your own life. So I would encourage you to take um, advantage of that opportunity. Your different leaders will post some stuff today or tomorrow to kind of guide that for this week. And I would encourage you to participate in that. Uh, We've also got the giving box in the back. We would encourage you to give today if you feel led to do that. Um, And as I get ready to close this in prayer, I want to... um, to encourage you to be in prayer as well. I posted on the city this week that um, obviously we're in need of, of more space for our children's ministry so that we can uh, have the kids' teaching time and the nursery set up in a way to where it removes distractions from, from our opportunities to teach but also provides the best learning environment for our kids as well so that their sanctification is being furthered. And uh, one opportunity that we identified very early on, and for whatever reason it's been withheld from us up to this point, is being able to have access to the the Boy Scout building right outside. Um, It's set up perfectly with four different classrooms, which would give us the opportunity to not only um, teach our kids in that environment right now and and have opportunities to grow. Um, It would allow us to move the nursery into the back room and be able to put a door on the room to where... There's plenty of room for the kids to move around, and um, it removes any type of noise distraction for you guys. And in in all our consideration, it seems to be set up perfectly for for us to to have access to this building and that building and for us to do what we need to do as a church. Um, We've written a letter specifically to the mayor of Sonoy asking for that. We've passed that letter along through a lady that I teach with who was pretty influential in this city. Um, she spends time with some of the councilmen regularly um, with her family, so they're, they're good friends. And so she's passed that letter along to the mayor, 
And um, they're going to be meeting about that tomorrow night. And that's supposed to get brought up at that meeting. So I want to encourage you guys to be in prayer for that. Um, If they were to give us access to that building, I feel like it would allow us to, to really move forward as a church, knowing that we've got what we really need for right now, right here, that we can... We can really start to make some plans, um, knowing that our kids are going to be taken care of the way that we want them to be taken care of. And and I know in, in looking at Scripture that Satan wants to do everything that he can to stop our church from moving forward. And I want to make sure that we pray that, that God would do what he wants to do, that Satan would not hinder us in any way, even if it means keeping us from that building. And we know that God is greater than any devices and plans of Satan. So I want to encourage you to be in prayer today and tomorrow. Um, They're supposed to meet tomorrow night, like I said. Pray that we'll hear back quickly and not have to spend a lot of time waiting. That we'll get an answer fairly quickly. And that, um, Lord willing, we'll get the answer that we desire to where we can have access to that building. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for the work that you're doing in the lives of our people here in this church. God, I thank you so much for the sanctification that has already happened. And God, I pray for continued sanctification in the lives of our members. God, we want to be made like Jesus. We want to become more and more holy in our daily lives. In the decisions and the The actions of our day, God, we want them to be reflective of what you desire for us in your word. So, God, I pray that you would continue this process of sanctification in our life. And for our church overall, God, we're praying for the best environment possible for us to grow in our knowledge of you. God, you know that we've set aside Sundays for a special time of emphasis on our sanctification. And in order for that to happen, God, we know that there's certain things that that we need to make that more possible. So, God, we're we're crying out to you and asking that according to your will, that you would give our church wisdom in knowing how to handle our spatial limitations. God, we're asking that if it's your will, that you would allow the the mayor and the councilmen that will be meeting on Monday night to be sensitive to our needs as a church and our desire to give back to this community. God, they would be open and receptive to allowing us to use the Boy Scout building on Sunday mornings. God, I pray that you would, uh, that you would stop any plans that, that Satan's forces have to hinder us from being able to do that. God, that you would stop any plans that they have to hinder the sanctification of our church right now in this area. God, that you would grant wisdom to those of us making decisions. That you would grant understanding to those who have the power to make those decisions. That you would continue to provide for our church what we need. And God, help us to always recognize that what we identify as needs may be different than what you see as our needs. So, God, we ultimately are praying for your will in this situation and for you to grant us wisdom to see your will in this situation as well. And, God, I do pray that as we leave this week, as we have opportunities to interact with these different individuals that we're praying for on our salvation prayer list, God, that you would give 
the courage to each one of our members to engage in gospel conversations with these people. God, the gospel would go out effectively from our church. That people would see our members as different, as people that are becoming more and more like Christ and desire to be a part of that. Like individuals desire to be a part of the early church in Acts. So God, I pray that you would continue to grow us this week. Help us to encourage one another as we have opportunity. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.